Greetings again to all of you worshiping at home. Our scripture reading this morning for our sermon comes from the New Testament, 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed and do not fear their intimidation and do not be troubled but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. During these times of crisis, the debate of each week seems to change and shift because we know so little. The debate this week seemed to be about the value of various courses of action. Which is more valuable, to stop an infection or to stop the collapse of an economy? And I was thinking this week of a different kind of question which affects more of uh, each of us individually. Which is more important? Is it more important to stop individuals from getting infection or is it more important to stop individuals from losing hope? Because of this, I was thinking of a, of a book that was written, well, many decades ago actually by a psychiatrist named Viktor Frankl. When he was young, he was uh, in a concentration camp in, in, under the Nazi government, and he writes there about hope in a very interesting way. He tells, for example, the story of a prisoner who was, of course, longing to be freed from this prison, and he said he had a dream. And in the dream, he was told that liberation would come on March 30th, 1945. And he was full of joy. He was buoyed up. You know, his spirits are lifted. He feels good because he's sure that this hope is true. As the day got closer, the news was dark. There was no sign that liberation was about to come. Frankel says on March 30th, the prisoner suddenly got ill. And on March 31st, he died. The point of the story that Frankel tells is that Apparently, he didn't die just of physical illness, of things that affected his organs physically, but that he died because he was starved of hope. Now, this prisoner's hope was a false hope. It was a, a wish. It was a dream. What kind of hope do you have? That's the question I want you to think about. What is your hope in this crisis? And let me make it more specific. What gives you confidence that you will have blessed days ahead? So I'd like to look at this text in 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning at verse 13. It talks about, really, our hope in Christ. And I'd like to raise three points with you. First, that this hope in Christ gives confidence to us. Secondly, it raises questions in others. And thirdly, that this hope has a solid foundation. So I'm going to begin with verse 13 
Because hope in Christ changes us and it's changed you. Verse 13 has these powerful words. This question, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? It changes how we live because this hope allows us to live confidently zealous for doing what is right in the sight of God. Without hope, we become fearful, we become protective, we become competitive. Because who knows whether I'll have blessings in the future or not. I have to grab everything I can. But in crisis, in crisis, when you have hope in Christ, this hope shines particularly. In the darkness, it shines even more brightly. You know, it's easy to be generous when the grocery shelves are full, but how do we love others when our own supplies are running low? It's uh, easy to be nice to others and kind when you have plenty, but what happens when there's shortages? I don't know if you've seen this video. It's rather embarrassing, actually, for the people in the video of two people in a grocery aisle literally fighting for the last roll of toilet paper. What do we do then? How do we become nice, kind, and gentle in those cases? So in contrast, our scripture is saying we are to be zealous to do good. And the word good is explained in the verses that precede and the verses that follow Indeed, in this whole letter of 1 Peter. Now, for example, verses 8 through 11. Let me read these. In sum, here's what it means to be good. All of you are to be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. And then let me read verse 10. The one who desires life to love and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his, life from, uh, his lips rather from speaking deceit. He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. Those are the kinds of things it means when it says we should be doing good. In a way, you could say, it's the commands of Jesus to us in the Gospels and in the rest of the New Testament. It's really the attitude of Jesus. It's living the life of Jesus before the watching world. Do good. Be zealous to do good. Verse 14 uses yet one other expression. It says, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. You see, doing good is doing righteous acts. That is, those things that please God, that are according to his will. It's living life the way God intended it to be lived. Who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? Peter was writing to a people facing trials of various kinds as they lived to please the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, there was persecution for their faith. It seems clear, especially as you read the first chapter of Peter, because he talks there about fiery trials. They're being mocked persecuted, maybe even facing martyrdom. But the context suggests a lot more. The trials, the stresses of life are much more common for Christians and for people in general. There's in chapter 2, verse 11 and on, inward struggle against sin. I don't know if you have that stress. I do. And then in verse 18 and on, there's employers who are unreasonable and harsh 
And so there's stress at work. And interestingly, the immediately preceding uh, section is on marriage. It's husbands and wives who can't get along. They're struggling. The, the, the marriage itself is toxic. The one is not doing what Christ wants him to do. So wives are haranguing husbands and husbands are threatening wives. They're trading insult for insult. That's what the context says. They're returning evil for evil. There's stress in the home. All kinds of things. There's many trials that test us as we seek to do good. So this verse 13 is rather dramatic. Be zealous to do good in all of these situations. Who is there to harm you if you do that? I think this virus is just one more stress on top of all the others. As I talk to people, I think uh, this becomes clearer. There are fractures in, in, in marriages and there's stress in families which are splintering. There's depression and loneliness. There's frustration at work. Young people are confused about their future, about college and education and marriage. And then this virus is just one more layer added on to all the other chronic stresses of life. And scripture says, nevertheless, be zealous for what is good. Even when everything in us screams out and says, I've got to just take care of myself. I've got to take care of my family. That's what matters. No, be zealous for what is good. Who is there to harm you? So here's the, the, the confident hope. Confident hope that scripture puts before people in crisis. Who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? And we say, are you kidding, Peter? I can think of a lot of people, a lot of things that would harm me. We always feel in danger. We feel threatened. There is, of course, persecution. And the Christians might say, you know, there's lions that are going to rip me to shreds. There's swords. There's, there's fire. They're going to burn me alive. There's diseases that are threatening us and accidents. There are 35,000 deaths from car accidents in the U.S. every year. It's not safe to drive. What do you mean there's no, nothing to harm me? There's about 600,000 deaths from cancer every year. 650,000 deaths from heart disease every year in this country. What do you mean there's no harm to fear if I am zealous for what is right? There's a lot that can harm me. Now, of course, Peter was not stupid. He knew this. He's writing for a people who are facing many threats and so he continues. Look at verse 14. So verse 13 has this bold statement. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? Verse 14. But even if you should suffer, uh-oh. We thought harm meant no suffer, but that's not what he means. So harm means something other than escape from suffering. He says, but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, doing what Christ wants you to do, you are blessed. Even if you should suffer, you are blessed. So it means, this no harm means that nothing, nothing can keep you from the blessings that God has in mind for you. No one and nothing can keep you from God's blessings. Here, Peter's question is, who is there to harm you? But I think it would be very fair and scriptural to add, what is there to harm you? That's what we saw last week in Romans chapter 8. Paul says, what is there in highest heaven or lowest hell that can come between you and the love that God has for you in Christ Jesus? There's nothing 
Nothing in life can separate you from that love. And then he says, not even death can separate you from God's perfect love because Christ has conquered death. He said, if you believe in me, in John chapter 11, if you believe in me, even if you die, yet you shall live. Who is there to harm you? What is there to harm you if you're zealous to do what is good? So the first thing I want to say is this confidence comes from God's promise to bless us, first of all, in the future, the promise that there's eternal life. Jesus has promised that you will be where I am. The promise that Psalm 23 relies on, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. There's a promise of God that ultimately we will always be blessed, but there's also the promise to bless us now. Verse 10 of chapter 3 says, He he who who desires life and love and good days, he's talking about life now. There's blessing now. And then look again at verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous, those who are doing what God wants them to do, and his ears attend to their prayer. So the other blessing is that God will be hearing your prayer. God's eyes will be on you to always be tending to you, showing you his kindness, pouring his grace out upon you. And so do good. Do good fearlessly. That's the first thing Peter is saying. In a time of crisis, Do good confidently, full of hope in the blessings of God. So here's my second point. As you do this, as you live this hope out confidently, this hope raises questions in others because our lives become a little mysterious. Maybe intriguing is a better word. People want to know what's going on. Why are you living like that? So verse 15 but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always uh, being ready to make a defense to everyone, listen to this, who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Asks you. People are going to come and wonder what's going on with you. What's up with you? Why are you living like this? Aren't you scared like I am? You'll stand out. People will want an explanation. And it'll be to the glory of Christ. It'll be to the spread of the gospel. That's what Peter is saying. May I give you an illustration from history? In the second century, there was another epidemic called the Antonine Plague. Uh, It began around the year 165 AD. Uh, The Roman Empire was at its height of power. It was doing well, there was, there was uh, trade going on, economy was bustling, the armies were victorious. It was described, this plague was described by the ancient uh, physician, the well-known maybe, to, if, you read, if you like history, the well-known physician Galen, who uh, described the symptoms of this uh, disease in some detail so that experts today suppose that it was probably smallpox. The parallels with today are intriguing, but on the other hand, maybe all epidemics sort of follow the same course. This particular one seems to have begun in China. There was a lot of trade between China and the rest of the world along a particular route called the Silk Road. It's a very 
a storied road traveled by merchants stretching all the way from China to the Middle East. And as merchants traveled back and forth, they carried the infection into the Middle East. In the Middle East, the Roman armies were waging war. And as the soldiers returned to what is now Europe, they carried with them this infection of smallpox. Ancient historians say that several thousand people died every day. Most likely because none of these countries had ever seen this disease. In other words, there was no uh, immunity in these populations. In fact, it seems that tens of millions finally ended up dying throughout the Roman Empire. The army was severely weakened. The economy was shattered as, as uh, merchants and shops and farms were shuttered. But there was something else going on. And this is what I want to point to. This is the illustration. Something else was going on during this very time, which is an illustration of the truth of uh, our text. The emperor launched a persecution against Christians during this time. He said that the reason this plague has come is because the Christians are not worshiping our gods and the gods are angry. And so this plague has been visited upon us. A warning, I think, to all of us to try to give reasons, deep, mysterious reasons for why pestilence has come. But because of this, he launched a persecution of the Christians. But the interesting thing is that in the midst of plague, pestilence, persecution, the gospel spread. The gospel grew. The kingdom of God grew. More and more people came to faith in Christ. Why? Because of how the Christians were living. Unlike others who were fearful and self-absorbed and running away from disease, the Christians were called to help others in need. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And so the Christians were ministering for the, to the sick and the hungry and the thirsty. They were taking care of them. They were doing good. They were behaving, in other words, righteously. I should pause and add that during this and other epidemics, Christians were always wise. The pastors were telling them that according to our teachings in the Bible, you have to protect yourself against self-harm. That's morally wrong. And so you have to be wise about how you go about doing these good things. But nevertheless, we are called to live righteously in the midst of a crisis. So yes, they cared for themselves, but they also did good. So their neighbors noticed the difference, and they asked why. What's wrong? Why aren't they behaving the way we are? And as the believers began to share their faith with them, in the gospel, these unbelievers found meaning and hope for life, not just when they're healthy and strong, but also when they're sick and even when they die. They found that there was comfort for them. There was comfort for them uh, of a hope that lay beyond the grave because of the Lord Jesus Christ who rose from the dead. So interestingly, during that and actually even subsequent epidemics, the church didn't shrivel up and die. It was not at all a time of shrinkage but growth. The Christian gospel flourished as people were drawn to this hope in Christ. So that's what's happening. That's what Peter is talking about in chapter 3, verse 15. 
As people see you zealous for good deeds in Christ, in crisis times, they're wondering what makes you tick. What is it about you that makes you live this way? And you'll have the occasion to tell them. Your hope will shine. It'll illuminate the world. So that's my second point. This hope in Christ gives us confidence to do good. This hope in Christ makes others curious about our lives. And thirdly, this hope in Christ has a solid foundation. That's what verse 15 says, if I can focus on one word one more time. Always ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. It's very important that our hope have a foundation. We don't want to rely on a dream that we had one night. We don't want to rely on wishful thinking. A hope that is worthy of betting our lives on, you might say, is a hope that has to be solid. And this is a hope that has a foundation. So, so first thing I would say is it's a reasonable hope. You see what it says? Be willing to give a defense or other translations say a reason for the hope that is in you. We have answers if people ask why we have this hope. There are answers based on reason and evidence. There are answers that begin with because and then there are sentences and paragraphs that follow. So first, I want to tell you this, that our hope is reasonable hope. This word hints of a courtroom scene. And the New American Standard that's, uh, translates it, be ready to give a defense. You know, it's a lawyer defending a client. Now, how do you think a lawyer would defend a client? Do you think a lawyer would look at the jurors and say, now, I don't really have any evidence to prevent, uh, present to you. I don't particularly have strong reasons to give you why my client is innocent. But you know what? In the depths of my heart, I really, really, really feel that he's innocent. I really hope you feel the same way. That would not be very powerful at all, I don't think. So that's not what it's talking about here. The lawyer instead, of course, would point to truth and to evidence, things that the jury can weigh and evaluate, talk about, look into, make decisions about. Our faith is reasonable. In other words, here's what I'm saying. It's not just a personal truth, a personal belief that we're sharing, but it's truth about God who rules over everyone. It's truth and hope about his grace and love for every human being on this planet displayed in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not, this is what works for me, I don't know what will work for you. This is what's getting me through this crisis, I don't know what will get you through this crisis. This is a universal solution. I know it sounds odd to talk about a universal solution for humanity, but maybe not so much in our day and age. Because in times of this crisis, there's teams all over the world searching for a, a vaccine, for example, a therapeutic for this virus that we're facing. If someone finds it, it's going to work everywhere. We're going to share it with everybody. If the Japanese find it, they'll share it with the Americans. If it, the Americans find it, It'll be useful in India. It's going to be used everywhere because when there's a universal disease, there's a universal solution because we're all humans. We have that in common. And the Bible says this problem of hopelessness and sin and death affects all of our, all of our souls as human beings. And so 
it's not a surprise that there's a universal solution, something that we can talk to each other about. So it's not just a personal truth. We give reasons why Christ is the solution for everyone. We give evidence. People can evaluate it. They may reject it, but we give things they can consider, weigh, make a judgment about. So this is a reasonable faith. I want to say then that this is a reasonable faith because it's a hope in the creator of heaven and earth. For example, chapter 4, verse 19 of this letter of Peter puts it like this. Therefore, those also who suffer according to the will of God shall entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. That really echoes verse 13, doesn't it, of chapter 3. We are entrusting our souls to our creator. You see, anyone we depend on, no matter how smart, how strong, how caring, is fallible. And so our hope is more akin to wishful thinking, but not so for God. Because God is omnipotent. There's no power greater than him. What he wishes, he does. So it's most reasonable to say that we hope in the one who made everything, who made you and me and who even made the laws of nature and put them into place. Every other hope has less foundation than our hope in the creator of heaven and earth. I I want to emphasize this uh, and I'll tell you why particularly this week. One reason why it's important to have a hope in our creator is that it saves us from hopeful or wishful thinking or even foolish thinking. I'm thinking this week of the words of a a columnist in a prominent newspaper who said that Christians are anti-science, that they are against rational and reasonable measures being taken against this epidemic. And I want to say that the truth is exactly the opposite because that assertion is completely contrary to our belief in the God of creation. It's precisely because we believe in God that we support science and we support research. Why? Because God has given us the ability to research. That's what the scriptures tell us. God has given us the ability to understand nature and apply what we learn to the care and benefit of humankind. The universe is run exactly by laws of nature. Why? Why are they there? Where did they come from? If you ask those who reject a belief in God, there's really no answer except a shrug of the shoulders. I shared with you before that I asked an astrophysicist once about that, and he smiled and he said, well, that's just magic. Can you imagine that? There is no explanation, but our explanation is very clear. It's because a rational God created heaven and earth. A rational God put its laws in place, and he gave us who are made in his image, he gave us the ability to understand nature. He gave us the ability, in fact, to do science. So we believe in science. We believe in medical research. It's absolutely silly to say that Christians are anti-science. And we believe that there are reasons, you see, as opposed to everybody else. We have solid reasons to believe that science can be fruitful because of who our creator is. A rational God who has made us capable of understanding this wonderful creation he's created. So what do we do? Well, we pray for doctors and researchers and scientists. We pray that God will prosper them because we see that as a gift of God. That's a provision of God. 
He's made us to be able to use that tool. So our hope has a solid foundation because it's reasonable. It's reasonable because it's a faith in the creator of heaven and earth. And our faith in the creator of heaven and earth is reasonable because we know him. We know what he's like. He revealed himself in the Lord Jesus Christ. There was an incarnation. God came and showed his kindness and grace to us in fullness. And there's reasons to believe this. This is not just a wild assertion that you can either accept or reject. This is evidence that can be examined. And of course, evidence that we've talked about for months and years in the past. So I, I'm not planning today to spend much time on it. But you know what that is. As you read the Gospels, you find that Jesus claimed to be that very creator. He shocked his disciples and even his enemies by those claims. They tried to attack him. Once in a, in, a, in a storm, in a time of crisis, when the disciples thought the ship was going to, to capsize, in Mark chapter 4, he commanded the sea and the wind to be still, and it was still. And the disciples said, who is this? What kind of creature is this? What is his nature that he can command creation itself? Because in the Old Testament, no one, no one had the power to command nature except Yahweh, God himself. And here was Jesus exercising the authority and power of God. But we believe his claims. We believe those claims because we believe that he rose from the dead. We're going to be celebrating that in a couple weeks. He said he would rise from the dead, that death had no power over him. And he did exactly that. And the evidence of history has no other explanation except that he really did rise from the dead. And so in Christ, we know God. He's not a tyrant, he's not aloof, but he loves us. He pours his grace out on him, uh, us. He came to fill us with joy, he says, and he came to bless us now and forever. That's why, as Peter says, our hope is unfading, kept in heaven, imperishable. Friends, we have a hope that gives us confidence to do good because nothing can harm us, no one can harm us. We have a, a hope that arouses questions in others as we live it out. And we have a hope that has a solid foundation. May I close by giving a fourth, a fourth description of this hope? Just as I close, I want to say this is a hope that actually is contagious. You see, people are hungry for hope. I began with this and I want to end with that. Our souls are hungry and thirsty for hope, and so we grab hope wherever we can find it. Oh, and people need true hope, genuine hope, solid hope. Hope in Christ has changed you. That's why you're not gripped with fear and panic, because you hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, you are confidently doing good. You're saying to yourself over and over, who is there to harm me if I'm zealous for what is good? What is there to harm me if I'm zealous to do what is good. That gives you great confidence because that's the promise of Christ. And that kind of hope is contagious. That kind of hope spreads by contact, contact with your life. That kind of hope spreads by what comes out of your mouth. I'm not talking about droplets infected with virus. I mean words of life that come out of your mouth. Explanations, reasons, persuasions for why you have this hope 
within you. And people are going to be hungry to hear what you have to say. Our God is a God of hope. And we trust in him. We remain strong because that hope is a strong faith. Let me close by words that Peter opened this letter with. This letter to a people in crisis. I'm going to read the first chapter beginning at verse 3. These are God's words to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Amen. Let's pray. Our faith, our hope are in you, Lord Jesus. We admit that sometimes we waver when the threats rise, when we hear distressing news. Sometimes even when we see other people panicking, it's like a contagion that puts panic in us. Oh, God, save us from that. Instead, let us shine with confidence in what you have promised. Let the hope that you have planted in our hearts through the Lord Jesus Christ shine to the glory of his name. In his holy name we pray it. Amen. I'm going to close with a word of benediction from Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him. And may you abound in hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you.